as I said in the first class, the best way to study, in my view, is to do the reading, first of all. And then after you've finished the reading, and don't take notes, and don't underline, or underline sparingly, because you know most people like to underline three quarters of the book. So it's like, I guess the joke I saw when I was a six-year-old, there's a pie there. You cut your slice of pie, and then you eat this part. You leave the little slice in the pie. That's the way I like to eat. Um, until I had cholesterol and hypertension problems, which was a result of eating like this. Yeah. I didn't have those problems then. Um, OK, so read the thing. Pay attention. Think what's important while you're reading. And when you finish, take no more than five minutes to summarize the main points. The main points are all I'm going to test you on. Nothing you, you, I wouldn't test you on anything you wouldn't have remembered if you'd done the reading and come to class without ever looking at the, your book or your notes. It's the main issues. Okay. So for today's reading, for example, in the comparative legal systems, we're talking primarily about the difference between public law and private law, the difference between uh, private law and the various specialized subfields that some countries consider to be part of private law and others separate fields of law. So things like uh, highly regulated uh, fields of law, like labor law, commercial law, which is what it's called in uh, European countries, what our law schools call, call corporate law or corporations, those are manifestations of law that became specialized and got its own set of rules. And some countries had its own set of courts. Family law, it's a contract, right? Why don't, you just, why don't we study family law inside a contract class, right? There's an offer and acceptance. Uh, in our culture, usually the man makes the offer and the woman makes the acceptance. That the contract is formed at that moment. It's not enforceable until uh, consideration has passed. That means somebody has done something uh, in reliance of the contract. Why don't we just rely on contract law to enforce marriages? Why do you, as a, as a point of discussion, why do you suppose we didn't just use contract law to, to regulate uh, marriage formation and dissolution? More factors? Such as, I mean, if there are children, large, um, huge amounts of property, if somebody signs a prenuptial agreement, then. And why wouldn't a contract work for that? Prenuptial agreement's a contract. It's true. It, it, it's true, it is. However, contract law wouldn't, to me, contract law wouldn't work out with a marriage unless it was, sim if, if there was simple, if it was simple and the couple really didn't have much. Then they can say, okay, you have this, I have this, we can go. But if they were together and they built up a lot, they built up a huge estate, there are children involved, especially young children, they're going to really take into the matters of what the children, what's best for the children. Okay, so you've identified some, a couple of key reasons why we, legal systems, both civil law and common law, have <coughs> from the great families of private law in the civil law systems, it was basically just private law, the chapter says. Because they didn't have governments. They didn't have regulations. They didn't have antitrust suits. They didn't have securities and exchange commissions or all these specialized fields of law that are studied these days. 
They started off just with private law. And in the Roman system, the system used by most civil code systems, uh, was a theory of obligations, contractual obligations, tort obligations, and then unfair enrichment, the chapter teaches us. Uh, and that could have been all the law we have, but that's law written in the sixth century out of the Justinian Code that was based in Constantinople, the Eastern Roman Empire, after the Western Roman Empire in Rome fell. Um, and 560 AD is not the year 2010, right? So lots of things have happened. Has the nature of marriage changed since 560 AD? You betcha. Um, and it, it changes at different paces in different subcultures and in different countries. Um, women have more rights. Women have more say. There's lots of subtle differences. And these value changes are reflected in the notion that it's not necessarily a contract that one size fits all. If we have a, contra a rule of contracts, contract law hasn't changed hugely in 2,000 years. Right? There's an offer, there's an acceptance. It's an assumption of freedom of contract. In the Enlightenment in the 17th century, when the philosophy from Scotland that came down to England eventually got to France in the French Revolution and so forth, uh, there was much more emphasis on the freedom aspect. So there was a movement, two con contradictory movements. One was leave the freedom to the individuals. But they're free, they're grown-ups, let them do what they want. They make agreements, they got to keep them. And there was another factor, which is we got to protect people against really unjust agreements. You get deceived, there's fraudulent misrepresentation, there's unequal bargaining power. And so the history of contract law also evolved to uh, try to make unjust contracts less enforceable, provide excuses, honest mistakes, all reasons why we might want to allow a contract to go forward or not. Now, in the case of marriage, aside from the, the factors that Tiffany just mentioned, the presence of children, how do you acquire property, there's the notion that you know, people go into the marriage contract not knowing what they're getting into. And believe me, uh, you don't have to be divorced or have been divorced to have an idea that when you say I do, you didn't really do your homework on all the implications. I mean, and, and, and it's hard to predict. And each country has its own notions. Is it community property or is it separate property, right? Uh, is it property that you got before you got married one way, property during marriage another way? Um, what are the best interests of the children? How is that determined? And what's, what's the importance of it? In the old days, it was very simple. Contract law would have been fine, right? The father rules. <coughs> I guess I was born too recently, but I won't get into that. that that's a bad joke. Um, but you know, it, and, and, and many people run their families that way. And those families have an advantage over other families. Because if one person decides, there's nothing to fight about. It just ain't just, at least according to contemporary values. If, if you've got joint decisions, it's much more complicated if you don't agree. Right? You've got conflict resolution on a daily basis. Um, the philosophy that I wish I could practice is something like this. Um, my wife makes um, most of the decisions except, and I make uh, just, just the important decisions. And you know, after 16 years, I've never made a single important decision. And anyway, uh, so 
Uh, anyway, whether it's uh, you want to have a uniform rule for the whole country, you want to have flexibility, you want each jurisdiction to decide. All the civil law countries, like all the states in the United States, have slightly different rules. And they want to have slightly different rules because the values are different, because the practical expectations of the people going into marriage are different. Uh, and the contract that you go into is not like a business contract where you think of all the things that could go wrong. You write it into the contract and say, if such and such happens, then this will be this. If something else happens, that will be that. You don't write those things down unless you're Donald Trump. You're on your fourth wife. You've been taken to the cleaners three or four times. And you write a prenuptial contract, which overrides marriage law. So instead of just saying marriage is a contract, whatever you agreed to at the time, we have this feeling that you know when you're 18 or 16 or 25 or 45, you don't know what you're getting into. And even if you're a little more sophisticated than other people, you don't want to sit down and imagine all the things that can go wrong, because that's the kiss of death, right? You're practically foreseeing all the things that you think are going to go wrong you put them down in advance to figure out how you're going to resolve it, you could spend the rest of your marriage negotiating these details before any of these things never happen. So we have marriage law as an example of uh, a body of law that emerged out of the laws of contracts, or as they say, contract, because it's generally one rule for all types of contracts in the civil law systems. Uh, and it has its own courts in most countries. Um, dealing with all the variety of problems that have to do with dissolutions of marriages, divorces, annulments, um, and especially the distribution of property and the looking after the welfare of children. Similarly, labor law. Why can't labor law just be a contract, right? There's a union and there's management. They negotiate. In the United States, it's usually on the basis of a local, which is a, con a union <coughs> for a given company possibly a given company factory, but typically a company. In Europe, they have uh, corporatism, which means that they, they negotiate on the whole industry. And the government is involved in tripartite negotiations. It's a different system on the continent of Europe. And their labor law is quite different from the Anglo-American model. And even the US model is very different from even the British model. And in any event, uh, labor law is less important because it basically grew out of the era of unskilled jobs, where you could uh, treat a lot of employees under one contract. Now with service industry, 75% of our economy, each service is a little bit unique. More sole contractors, more um, small businesses. I think small business <clears throat> up to 25 employees is 3 quarters the em employment in the United States. So it's a very different economy. So labor law in itself is much less significant than it could be. In fact, the Obama administration has not filled three members of the Labor Relations Board since it took office. I mean, sorry, the, the, John McCain has stopped the approval of the nomination of three vacancies on the Labor Board. There are only four positions. So the Labor Board hasn't met, and it's not even a scandal. It hasn't even hit the front pages that um, they're not letting this government body go forward because nobody likes the nominee. And it's, not a, it's just one of the three nominees that they don't like, but uh, they're holding up that nomination. And so we hear about health care confrontations and, and stalemates on banking funding and all of that, but a lot of other things are on hold too in Washington. And labor law is not so important, so this filling appointments is not so important. In Europe, it's still really important. 
because uh, percentage of the unionization is here under 8%. In Europe, it's probably 50%. Okay? And they can't restructure the economy because their contracts are negotiated for entire industries. And the competitors don't compete on wages. And so Europe's economies have been slower to recover historically. Than our economy, we have much, uh, you're, un you're unemployed more frequently in the United States, but for much shorter periods of time. Uh, they have now high unemployment as well, and long period, three, four years of unemployment. So that's one of the consequences of their labor law. And they can't change the labor law because it's written in code, except by statute. And there's no, since unions are part of parties, they are able to control the voting. I'm not anti-union. I'm just saying that that is <coughs> the situation that comes out of their labor law that affects the economics and the politics uh, and strains the world economy. Another example of <coughs> a body of law that doesn't fit neatly just into private law as such would be any activity <coughs> that has emerged with government regulation. In Rome, do they have government regulation? I'm sure they had some, but you know, generally speaking, there were a couple of citizens who had all the full rights. Nobody else had any rights. You got what you got. The, the, uh, ever heard of this Latin expression, caveat emptor? The buyer beware. What, what is the implication of that in contract law? Anybody? Right, and, and with respect to a contract? Right. In other words, in other words, before you sign the contract, read everything in read everything in detail. Read the fine print. If you're not too sure on what it's going, what it what the section states, then ask for an interpretation. Right. We're both right. What what that both basically means is, you make a contract, you're stuck with it. We're not going to intervene. You buy something. There are no warranties. Okay. In modern life, we've got all these warranties. You know, the, the, the state imposes statutory regulations that say, you know, if you say that this is good food and it poisons you, you're going to sue the company, right, for selling you something that it wasn't. In the Roman times, it's freedom of contract. You don't have to buy it. You examine it. You look at it. There's, there's no protection. So obviously, contract law has changed enormously with respect to this principle of caveat emptor. Now, you can nullify a contract if there's deception. You can nullify a contract if there was a mistake. You can nullify a contract clearly if uh, that you didn't provide what you said you, could pro you would provide. In Rome, even if you promised to provide wheat and you didn't get wheat, if you didn't inspect the wheat, it's the buyer's problem. It's a, different, it's a much simpler society. You want to have simple, a society without laws? Then you're going to get screwed in contracts. And it's going to hurt the economy because the protection given to contracts gives businesses the confidence that they're not going to get screwed. And so they go and freely enter into contracts and make business. But if you, if you have to bear the burden of some fraud or some misrepresentation or some mistake or some negligence in your contracts, why would you go into a contract? It's too risky. So again, the law has a tremendous economic implications. And all countries have decided that we need to have fairly de uh, developed contract laws. And in fact, Rome did have much more uh, elaborated contract laws by the fifth century. I think caveat emptor is probably an expression 
you know, 500 years before in the early stages of the Roman Empire compared to when the Justinian Code was written out of the Eastern Roman Empire. So areas that are highly regulated, like labor law, is no longer part of contract law. Marriage is no longer part of contract law. Uh, corporations are, uh, the treatment of corporations theoretically could be governed just by contract law, right? You just write a contract, create a corporation. But corporate law is extremely specialized and is founded in our system differently from civil law systems initially, which is we create personhood out of companies. What is a corporation? A corporation is, uh, at least a pub formal incorporated corporation, is some entity which has the liability uh, imposed to that entity and not all the people working for it. So for example, if some student comes into this room and shoots some of you, they can't say to me, why didn't I stop the shooter? They would sue Georgia State, right? Because there's this entity out there that has treated like a person and is said to be responsible for whatever happened. I'm talking, I got that case of Huntsville in my mind still. <laughs> there's another story, another story, yes, it's an even crazier story than the, what I described last week. But, um, well, I mean, what, what's the latest? Um, well, I mean, basically, the mother got, got the daughter off when she killed It was fairly clear she murdered her brother. And she just said it was an accident. And, and they didn't, nobody liked, and then she ran into the car dealership and said, my husband's going to kill me. Give me that car or I'll shoot you. And she had the rifle in her hand. You know, they didn't charge her for that because she didn't, you know, it was her father's hunting rifle. And um, it turns out her, her academic record, she, had, she padded it. She said she was at Harvard two years longer. She uh, published in Vanity Press. She listed her co-authors, her two children and her husband, and said her husband worked at the university when he didn't. So, so caveat emptor, I guess, when it comes to your professors. I, I don't have any guns, I promise you. What's that? Okay, so um, when we talk about these various differences, in civil systems, everything starts with the private code, right? Um, public law, you've heard of that perhaps if you're a political science major, um, emerged in the last century only. So if, if civil law systems date to the sixth century, all but the last century only had private law or private codes. And so sometimes called public law then would be constitutional law, administrative law. It's the two main branches. Admin is sometimes said for short. And as we discussed last time, constitutional law is treated very differently in different countries. If with civil law systems. We had the judicial review in France by the Council of State of administrative regulations on a, using case law with precedence, even though the Council of State is part of the executive branch of France. 
because France has this doctrine <clears throat> of being skeptical of judges because judges were at the guillotine in the 1789 period of Jacobin terror. And it was the judges that tyrannized the population. So they believe in separation of powers. <clears throat> the United States system is not separation of powers. Did they teach you that in school? I think we went over this earlier in the semester. We have separation of powers and then checks and balances. And the most powerful legislator in the country is not the legislature, it's the president, because he signs bills and vetoes bills. So in other words, basically here we have our system is independent and interdependent at the same time. Yeah, I would say checks and balances on separate branches. I mean, it, but France has separation of power, and so they do not want the courts reviewing the constitutionality of the executive branch, although they do have a Supreme Court as well that takes some cases, but they're not administrative law appeals. In other words, if it goes to the very heart of the French Fifth Constitution of the Fifth Republic, then its constitutional court will decide it. But for all administrative law, which is the law of the government vis-a-vis -vis any private entity. So it's you and the driver motor vehicles department, it's uh, the regulation of companies by, for antitrust by, in our country, the Federal Trade Commission. Those would all go to the Council of State, which is part of the executive branch, which was created by the French Revolution and even before, because they don't want checks and balances. They want se truly separate powers for the most part. Germany's different. Germany just um, worries about judges because during the Nazi period, the judges said, oh, everything is legal, what they're doing. Well, it was legal because they said, basically, there are no natural rights, there are no human rights. Or also in the Constitution, there's a clause that says, in emergencies, the government shall rule by decree. And so there was a decree for everything they did that was so terrible. So you think that Germany actually would have much more of a system of separation of powers. But the thing is that the German code was written uh, you know, at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And so the system would, had been put in place before, 50 years before the Nazi period. And so Germany's system says, we like the notion of checks and balances. So we allow judges to say, in the case of their constitutional court, uh, to strike down uh, laws and acts of the executive or congressional branches as unconstitutional. So they have a checks and balances system. Um, also note that both France and Germany have parliamentary systems, as we talked about. So the, uh, the cabinet is in charge of the executive branch, but the cabinet is drawn from the majority coalition of the of the, the legislature. But the separation of powers still, it's a doctrine that still applies to parliamentary systems in France and Germany, but does not really apply, at least not to the same extent, in the United Kingdom. Because in the United Kingdom, there's no judicial review. Just reviewing what we went over a couple of weeks ago. Judicial review, again, is the power to declare a law or an act unconstitutional. Britain has no written constitution. So the only thing the highest court of England does, and they're just getting their brand new building, is to interpret laws, what they mean, but not to strike them down as unconstitutional. Private law, then, uh, includes the classic parts, which is the law of obligations, 
contract, say contracts if you like, tort, and then you can say torts, and unjust enrichment, which is interesting. We don't have this doctrine in common law countries, but the civil law countries had perhaps more mercil merciless forms of feudalism, and, and they really wanted to protect the little guy and gal from someone exploiting them economically. It's not a huge part of this. The main parts as here are contracts and torts. Theoretically, you could include torts as part of contract law, right? And by suggesting that any harm is a result of breaking some implicit agreement you have with your neighbor, as opposed to an explicit agreement. But generally, um, contracts are formal agreements to keep exchange promises. You promise to do this, I promise to pay you. Um, torts is the law of harms in all their varieties. And these are only regulating the conduct of private citizens or organizations and institutions. Now, what if you want to sue the government? Is that public law or private law? Suppose you have a contract with the government. And the government doesn't pay you what it said you would pay in return for you selling them pistols or pencils or whatever you're selling to the government. Is that going to be governed by public law or private law? Why? I think that's basically right, but let's consider the following. If we use private contract law to regulate the activity in the civil law countries, <clears throat> there still may be some legislation that says the government can be freed from paying like when the tax base is not enough revenue, let's say, or there's been a change of government. If there's some government rule, it would be started in private law, as you say, but it would have kind of public law implications. What's the point of my example? The point is that these separate realms are not so separate. This sort of private law with a lot of public law interference, and it would have bureaucratic implications if there was a jurisdictional issue as to what court would have the jurisdiction of any trial. And it may be that in a country like Germany, which you will recall has six major divisions, with each of which have six supreme courts, you would have a situation where there might be jurisdictional disputes. So countries like Germany has a court to determine which court gets the case. And which court gets the case probably has an implication as to how the decision may be decided. One of the important points that the chapter makes is that Depending on what court decides or what set of rules you have applied, the outcome can be completely different. And even if you have the same rule in two different types of courts, the, the procedure, if it's civil procedure or criminal procedure or constitutional procedure, could be different and you'd end up with a different outcome as well. Plus there's also luck and random, randomness. You know, so some things don't have an explanation. I just didn't see it the way you saw it. So this is, let's say, not rocket science, not even natural science. It's not really an art. But it's, you know, it, the predictions are clear, but they don't always work out that way. So you trying to figure out how it works in a code-based system 
is harder to predict than in our, our common law system. Because at least in our common law system, our courts, comparatively speaking, are more unified in each state. Most cases are in the general court. Some states have a separate criminal court, and some states have a separate family law court, and some states may even have a probate court dealing with trusts and estates, which again is like a corporation creates personhood out of a construct. I mean, you can't, a trust, I mean, maybe you see a building of a trust or an estate coming from someone who's died, uh, but you can't, normally you think you, you couldn't give them legal properties and legal rights and legal duties, but we do. Uh, in, <clears throat> so we have those kinds of courts. Um, in some of the civil law countries, they have much more specialization. Although in common law, we have some specialization as well. The probate courts that most states have in the United States have no parallel because they don't have trusts and estates in civil law systems. They just don't exist. Some, the author seems to imply that that's a disadvantage of civil law systems. You can't create an entity with obligations that can change over the course of time. The way it works there is, you know, when someone dies, the property is distributed, and that's it. It's over. It's done with. And it's done very quickly. With our system, there's a will, there's an estate. The estate has to be probated and approved. And that, that estate continues on for many years. And that estate can not distribute its property right away if it doesn't want to. <clears throat> or it can create a trust so that the beneficiary, whether it's children or a nonprofit organization, would only get the money 30 years from now for 50 years from now. And the state can have employees in effect, uh, trustees for a trust, um, or I forgot what the term is for an estate. When you're appointed an estate, what is that? Executor. executor of an estate, thank you. Yeah, so the executors, if you want the state to last for 30 years, you pay them a fee for 30 years, and it continues. You can't do that in civil law countries. You can in ours, and it's quite possible that one of the reasons we have nonprofit organizations to a much greater degree, what sometimes are called NGOs in other countries, is that our law once again provides for that purpose, whereas the civil law countries where the state did, had a much more prominent role in the lives of citizens, the state did everything, so there wasn't the need, so the law legal mechanism was never developed for the large majority of countries. Another theme from the course is this notion of convergence. In trying to make generalizations, it's pretty clear that, I think that's how you spell it, that um, are converging. We're learning from France. France is learning from England. England is learning from us, and, and vice versa. So that undoubtedly, some of these civil law countries are developing something like what we call an estate or a trust. And to some extent, uh, their employment law is like our labor relations law, because they're finding they can't afford to have national contracts negotiated with the government, employers, and labor unions on an industry-wide basis, because they find their products can't compete. And undoubtedly, there's some uh, reduction in that uh, process. Nevertheless, when we talk about civil law countries, private law is, and public law are really treated as quite separate domains, whereas in common law countries like ours, 
there's much, much more interaction. We do study public law and political science here. And if you go to law school, you, you might take a course in administrative law. You will probably almost ha necessarily take one in constitutional law. But uh, we don't necessarily consider private law as being completely separate. Contract law in the United States would apply to government, would apply to government labor relations, would apply to private in individuals. Whereas in the civil law countries, uh, basically, government contracts are governed by private law, with any, but with any exceptions that are made by statute, uh, but not by judges, because judges do not make law, at least formally so in the civil law countries, unless there is a system such as the Supreme Court of Germany or the case law of the Council of State in France, which provides for some judge-made law, but not like our system, <coughs> where any time a decision is modified, overruled, declared unconstitutional. Judges make new rules that are binding, not just on the people to a particular trial, but on the entire country as well. Uh, finally, you know, the law does reflect the larger society. And if there are changes in society, the legal system usually catches up. In our system, the judges will help catch up the law because they also make law. The civil code systems are a little bit slower to adapt unless they have statutory legislation that changes the codes. One disadvantage the civil law countries have is that when you have the code and then you have statutory modifications, it's not clear how to mix the two with a uniform interpretation. In a common law system, case gets appealed to a high enough level, we got a decision on a rule to a set of facts, even if construed as narrowly as possible, we have conclusive decision. In the code-based systems, we got this code, its origins go back to the 6th century AD, it was written in France and Germany, the 18th, early 19th century in France, late 19th century in Germany, then we've got all these statutory provisions uh, for admin law, we have the Council of State with some case law, but for private law, there's no highest court that can do anything more than casse, to break the previous decisions, as I described in the last class, but no definitive analysis of what the rule is for the country. So if you're practicing law in the continent of Europe or in similar legal systems in Asia and Africa and Latin America, one of the problems you have is you really have a harder time figuring out what the rule is that you're dealing with. And I would say that's the big advantage of our much more costly litigative society is that when all said and done after tremendous expense with perhaps less judicial access, we get a clear rule. And the code-based systems don't. The advantage they have is they have more flexibility. Uh, and generally speaking, I guess because the rule is clear in our country, if you win a case, you get a whole lot more money because a clear sense that a wrong has been done. In Europe, it's not worth suing because the payoff is not that great. So Europe has fundamental differences of view. If you get a tort in Europe, you're just going to get a small amount of money. If you got a contract in Europe, their remedy is do the contract, unless it's impossible. In our system, if you breach a contract, you pay. 
Because the assumption is we're going to be pragmatic. They didn't do it the first time. Why should they do it the second time? Just pay up this money. And maybe we'll tax your wages if you don't pay. So it's a, it is a different philosophy. It is a different approach. Uh, the idea that a contract is binding is much stronger in Europe. And they're much less likely to say failure, breach of contract, that is failure to perform your promise will not be excused. You must do it. Now, which system is better? Well, in our system, you don't get what you originally wanted. You do get money, and generally you get a lot of it, but it takes you 10 years to get the money. 10 years, you could be gone. In Europe, if there's a breach of contract, you'll get your stuff sooner, but it may not be done with much enthusiasm. In Europe, also, there is a sense that the statutes ought to prevail over the private code if there's a clear consensus. So I would say that while the code has tremendous authority, it's losing some of that authority, particularly when the society changes and the statutory changes make clear that they want the change. So finally, let's, let's take the example of uh, labor relations again. If it were come to pass that Europe decides that they can't afford to have these national contracts much longer, then Europe is going to create statutes that will say from now on, negotiations are not going to be done on a national basis for entire industries. Uh, the contracts will be done on a factory by factory basis or a company by company basis in any event with these unions. Uh, and if they got that through the statutes, it would be because the unions, which are a major part of the left-wing parties, because in Europe, the model of political parties uh, is that entities are members, not just individuals. So labor unions, and for that matter, corporations, are members of parties, not only in the continent of Europe, but also the United Kingdom. So they got that through. It would be clear that the unions wanted it because they wanted to survive that way. And if I had to make a prediction, I would think that private labor contracts will go that route because they're in a world economy and they're globalized. But like the United States, uh, labor contracts probably will continue less modified with government employees because it's not a globalized economy directly. It would be only be indirectly because of the tax burden. And generally, uh, the federal government in the United States does not allow a formal union. There's no negotiations allowed. But some states, not Georgia, but other states do have unionized uh, state workers. And they are pretty good at protecting themselves. Uh, particularly teachers and sometimes postal workers get a negotiated contract and they can go on strike and cause havoc. In Europe, they have wildcat strikes and they have government strikes both permitted. <coughs> the wildcat strikes are different from the United States because here you can only go on strike when a contract is over. So our labor law is based on the notion of contract where you make a promise and you promise to work until the end of the contract. You can't go on strike in the United States until the contract is expired. Otherwise, labor unions would be in breach of contract. In Europe, people go on strike whenever they feel like it. It's not illegal to go on strike before a contract ends. And not only that, you could go on strike for some, in solidarity with somebody else. And in Latin America, quite often they have national strikes. No one works that day in solidarity with the bus drivers. 
And you know, that's sort of unimaginable to Americans to have the economy disrupted that way. Uh, the workers get a lot more of what they want in Latin America, but some people would critique it as being unmanageable and ungovernable, and so on and so forth. Unless you've got political consensus and economic consensus in a country to some extent, you're going to end up with resolution being done in the street rather than in the courts or in the legislature. So we're in a situation where the conditions favor capital over labor. Uh, Latin America is in a situation where le conditions, legal laws and economic conditions favor labor over capital. And people can argue who's better off in the long run. OK, that's all I have to say about chapter 5 on fields of substantive law. Um, let me turn to the uh, discussions of our moot court. First, I want to tell you that on Friday I was in New Orleans uh, for the National S International Studies Association, and I organized a moot court with roughly the same topic as yours. And I recorded it, and it's up on ULEARN. So if you want to have a sense of how um, one of our graduate students and I and a few other people argued your case, you got an hour and 45-minute recording there. You can listen to it and get lots of ideas. Uh, your situation is different. We had a set of facts that we agreed to. There were no witnesses. So you just get legal disputes debated. But that, that'll give you a lot of hints as, as how to proceed. Um, I wanted to talk today about um, continue our discussion of impossibility and necessity, which we is discussed in the last class's podcast and has played a very prominent role in that moot court to some of the issues of war crimes uh, that you're going to be discussed, discussing. The first point is that uh, the code for war crimes is Article 8 of the ICC statute. But the, there is some parent law called the Geneva Conventions, primarily of 1949. which the International Criminal Court included into its statute. And so generally, what we have in war crimes, as with crimes against humanity in Article 7, is a code-based statute, although the procedure in the courtroom is more like our adversarial trial. So the International Criminal Court is essentially the legal system of most countries of the world, legal codes, based on Roman private law, updated by the Geneva Conventions as incorporated into Article 8. But the trial procedure is cross-examination, no hearsay evidence. The judges don't ask questions of fact. They only keep the rules uh, regarding evidence, uh, enforce those rules. And decisions are <laughs> given, unlike in common law systems, without juries. It's just judges. Yeah. yeah I was going to say. What makes a code-based system? It's a code-based system because there's no common law. We have not studied common law yet. Uh, the second half of this textbook will be on common law. The next chapter in the book um, still is on civil law systems. So your midterm, essentially the first half of the course will be on civil law systems. The second half of the course will be on our common law system and on a couple of supranational systems, especially the European Union and the European Court of Human Rights. But to answer your question, 
the second half of the course, we'll learn how the common law was developed over six to eight centuries on the English countryside, where judges made law pretending to only recognize what was customary and legally binding in disputes. Okay? So it evolved from the practices in England's countryside. Uh, there's no judge-made law uh, that precedes this court. What there is are two important ad hoc tribunals, one called the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, the other one is the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I would never test you on knowing any of these intimate details, but uh, since they are not binding, because it's not a common law system, at, at best you can discuss these cases in your trials by saying, this is how this case handled the situation. It's analogous to being in Georgia and talking about a case in Mississippi. A Mississippi case cannot be legally binding on Georgia any more than New York's cases can be binding on Georgia. But it might be instructive. It might teach us how they handled it, why the precedent has worked, why it's a good idea, why we should use it, or why Georgia is different. We should do things differently here than somewhere else. Um, and because it's a court, we're not talking about policy differences. We're talking about actual legal differences. So this is a code-based system because the statute is the code. Okay. And then the elements of crime were, in effect, the bureaucratic negotiated definitions of the terms in the statute. So first of all, the main distinction in the code is that international armed conflict is different from internal armed conflict, right? And why is that relevant? Well, in your moot court, it's an international case. A country is invaded. The president uses chemical weapons that are illegal, but not necessarily justiciable in this particular court, maybe in some other court, like a national court. Because it's international, there are many, many more protections. Because the countries that negotiated this code, the Geneva Conventions, and after World War II, uh, we're much more willing to have very intrusive, highly regulated rules of combat, protection of prisoners of war, protection of civilians under occupation, and so forth, uh, than they were willing to have other countries come and regulate what they do inside their own countries. It follows from the human rights practice initially that human rights are our business. Uh, we can, you can even like, promote them in our country, but we're in charge of legal protection, actual enforcement. So your moot court case is international armed conflict. You've got many, many more protections, uh, one of which is it's fairly clear that there was a war crime for using the chemical weapons if our country has ratified that treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention. Now I'm going to make it interesting for you in your moot court. I'm going to say the country hasn't ratified it. So essentially, all the crimes are up for grabs. It can be argued by both sides either way. Uh, the prosecution is going to say chemical weapons are banned by custom, or they're banned because they're inherently indiscriminate. But what you want to do is start with the statute and understand that you can go to other <coughs> sources of law. So this is what civil law systems do. You start with the private code. 
If the private quote is clear, you don't go anywhere else unless there is a clear modification in a statute and the statute says this will take precedence over the code as opposed to just modifying it. So in our moot court case, you start with basically Articles 7 and 8 for crimes against humanity and for war crimes. And then the next question is, do any other treaties apply? And the statute says, only if these are not clear. And of course, as lawyers, you'll argue that they're unclear if you want to go to another treaty to say that this is criminal but ought to be justifiable in this case. And then there is the equivalent of common law, which is customary international law. Or what in a domestic legal system, we would call customary law. Now, it's not customary in the sense of culturally practice. Like, I like rock music and you like rap. And my culture is different from your culture. It's customary law. In some sense, this ought to be one word without a space between the two words. What that means is it's customary and we all feel it's legally binding. What does legally binding mean? Well, there's always disagreement over this, but it generally implies either that the government regulates it or there is punishment if you break the law. It would be criminal punishment if it was a crime. It would be civil punishment, which in our system would be payment of money uh, and different provisions for civil code systems. To look for the content of customary law, you might go to these cases and argue the decisions in these cases are so influential that they are binding too. How might this come up? Well, for example, the question is, uh, we talked about the mental element. Remember that? In Article Theory, it says it has to be intent and knowledge. But others would say, as you'll recall from an early class, and this is something you should know for the midterm, uh, what about standards like recklessness or even negligence? We know that in domestic legal systems, many civil law countries and in common law systems have a lower standard. That is a standard easier to make. In other words, to prove that there was intention. Uh, the general rule is you've got to have intent and knowledge. But maybe knowledge doesn't mean complete foreseeability of all the consequences. So the, the statute is very clear. It's knowledge about what would ordinarily happen in the ordinary situation as a consequence of your action. So it's an objective test. Remember that distinction between objective and subjective? Objective means it's what the reasonable person would say is ordinary and would ordinarily result. It's not subjective, that is, what the person thought him or herself. Now, in your moot court case, the facts we have is that the president didn't think that chemical weapons would cause tremendous harm. But the test is objective, so the question is, would it be reasonable to expect a president to know that chemical weapons would harm his own civilians? And both sides will argue that differently. Some defense will say, how can you expect a busy man to know these things? He's just doing what he wants to protect his country. The prosecution would say, how can a head of a country not know that chemical weapons are not illegal? Well, the defense might say, well, the United States used napalm in World War II and Vietnam. And the United States said, 
we deny that there's any evidence whatsoever that napalm has long-term health problems. It's an incendiary chemical weapon that was used. And so it can be argued either way. So the mental element standards of recklessness and negligence, you would probably go to customary law to see if the other sources of law that the statute says can be consulted would ap apply to your case. And if so, you would cite a case, probably the Blaskish case at the ICTY, which says that recklessness for certain war crimes would apply. Another example, Article 8 for uh, the grave breaches provision of the Geneva Conventions, which creates universal jurisdiction under it's interesting, the United States disapproves of the International Criminal Court, but we've ratified the Geneva Conventions, which states that for grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, any defendant could be prosecuted in any domestic court in the world. So already, in spite of all the talk about the International Criminal Court, um, any leader of any country or any senior official who tortures or willfully kills, pe murders people, could be tried in any domestic court in the country, not on the basis of where the incident happened and not on the basis of the citizenship of the defendant. That's already on the books. Does it happen? No. Why doesn't it happen? Because of politics. The United States doesn't want to be prosecuting the Prime Minister of Canada, partly because we'd rather get trade with Canada, partly because we have uh, no war with Canada and we're getting rich off the relationship and cooperating is important. Uh, and also, w w in terms of reciprocity, we don't want to try them because they don't, we don't want them to try us. But there might be some rogue prosecutions out there someday if someone ever gets arrested for crossing the border in the wrong direction. Um, so the grave breaches provision is, the, is in Article 8, Paragraph 1 of that statute. Uh, and it lists the kinds of things that would, would be prosecutable in an international armed conflict. So, for example, in this particular moot court that you have, among the things that are universally uh, prosecutable, at least in theory, are willful killings, torture, willfully causing great suffering. So there, the mental element is willful. So in addition to these two, we have a code-based provisions of willfulness, which is a lower standard than intent and knowledge that's provided in the statute for Article 8, Paragraph 1, actually it's Paragraph 2 crimes. So the law is complicated. The law has, in this particular case, teaches you that you have to have intent and knowledge. But for willful killing or torture, uh, sorry, or torture, the standard, at least for, um, I'm sorry, torture is banned absolutely. So that would be intent and knowledge. But for killing and causing serious, great suffering or serious injury to body or health, it'd be willfulness. Now in your moot court case, was the president willful to cause serious bodily damage or to health? What is the definition of willful? Is it recklessness? Is it negligence? Or is it intent and knowledge? Well, the text says that willfulness is closer to negligence. 
I'm sorry, recklessness, I'm sorry. Willfulness is closer to recklessness. In other words, you're not worried about the consequences. Did you intend to do the things you were doing using these weapons? And it assumes by an objective standard that you should have known that it was an indiscriminate weapon. Willful does sound a lot like intent and knowledge. I do agree with you on that. But the way it's been interpreted in most countries' legal systems is as recklessness. And the statute also says, if in doubt, go to the principles of the major legal systems of the world and use the domestic legal standard and international standard. I realize this is very complicated. Uh, but once you get a grasp of this, you'll understand really how code-based systems work differently from what ours do. What we do in a common law system, we look up the case. We just say, is there a case by the Supreme Court that's ruled on chemical weapons used by a head of state? If yes, then we've got a clear rule. If no, then the two approaches tend to be quite similar to each other because then they don't, we don't have a precedent either. So then what we do in a common law system is to look for cases that are similar but not exact and then try to say the similar cases ought to be decided similarly. And the other side would say they're, they're similar, but they're not exact, and there ought to be a different rule, that is, a different law generated to decide the case. In a code-based system, they'd still look for the rule, but they can't find it in a court case, unless the country has a constitutional court that says that they do have a system, i.e., unless they're in Germany. But typically, there's no court case, there's no court-based law that has a precedent. So in determining the meaning of willfulness in your moot court as part of the mental element, you're going to look to customary law, you're going to look to the principles of domestic legal systems, uh, and you're going to look to the treaty, which is the Geneva Conventions, and try to interpret what the word willfulness means. Now in the context of our moot court, that's going to take about two sentences because we only have 75 minutes per moot court. But I'm putting you through the paces here to give you an understanding of how complicated those two sentences would be in a trial. And that's why you go to law school, because everybody has been through the paces and therefore has an understanding of what the issues are at stake. Any questions about that? OK, the other part is uh, Article 8. Um, Paragraph B is for the non-grave breaches from the Geneva Conventions. These are rules that are governing uh, the activity in an international armed conflict, but which uh, are not part of this parent law from the Geneva Conventions. And here, the mental element is defined in the text. It says, intentionally directing attacks against personnel etc. Intentioning launching attack in the knowledge that such an attack will cause incidental loss of life and injury to civilians. So I just read from you Article 8, Paragraph 2B4. And so for your moot court, the question is, did the president intentionally launch an attack in the knowledge? So it's intent and knowledge right there in the provisions. It's not recklessness. If you're going to prosecute for war crimes under Article 8, Paragraph 2B4, you need to show that the president intended the acts and had knowledge of the likely consequences. So oddly enough, for the grave breaches provision of this code, you can have a lower standard of recklessness 
but for the items that are listed in the next section that originate from the statute that didn't, weren't included in the grave breaches provisions of the Geneva Conventions, it's a higher standard. It's the intent and knowledge standard. So if you're going to be really on top of your legal game, you have to realize that in the moot court, if you're talking about uh, willful killing, you can get away with saying the standard is recklessness. If you're talking about intentional harm to body and health, then you also have to prove intent and knowledge. And this is why being a judge in a courtroom is very, very hard, because you really have to know which law is applying to which charge, and then apply the facts to that situation if you're also determining facts in a particular court case. And you judges are going to really have to be on top of your game, because you're running the show, right? One of you will be the presiding judge. One of you will be in charge of asking legal questions. Presiding judge may ask questions of fact to the witnesses as well, because it's a different legal system. In their system, a presiding judge can interview the witness too, not just the two sides. It's not like LA Law or Perry Mason. And the judge can ask legal questions of both lawyers. And so one of the first questions I expect judges to ask in our moot court would be, um, okay, which indictment count are you referring to? What is the mental element for that? And the prosecution may argue one say, side, and the uh, defense will argue the different standard. For the midterm, all I'm expecting you to know is that there are different standards of the mental element that in this particular code that I've asked you to come to speed on, the standards vary depending on which count we're talking about. And within war crimes, the mental element changes from depending on which war crime you're talking about. Um, I won't ask you probably the exact number, but if I do ask you the number on the midterm, you'll be able to look it up online. Just type in ICC statute uh, for International Criminal Court Code Statute. And I'll refer to the article number in any questions so that you, you know, I'm not expecting you, to, I'm certainly not expecting you to memorize any of this. But I, I do, like a lawyer, expect you to be able to look it up and then interpret it. Okay? And if you've, if you've been paying attention to these different formulations, mental element, material element, um, and contextual element, as well as the necessity and duress exceptions, you should have no problem at all with the midterm. So to summarize then again, with two classes to go, I'm going to continue to try to review as we go. Please prepare yourself for any questions you have for me. And you'll have between Wednesday and Saturday of next week to do the online midterm. Finally, please make sure that you work. You can get on to ULEARN. Please go on there, because if you can't go on ULEARN, you can't take the test. Thank you.